0: So my my name is Steve Johnson, I was a student here at UCT, seems like forever ago, Um, but uh, it's always wonderful to come back to this particular venue. Uh, Grant and Rebecca, thanks for having me uh, this morning, and thank you to the worship team this morning, uh, particularly moving time, and it's just, there's always such a sweet spirit here, so it's lovely to be here, thank you. Thank you. I've got the vast topic of faith to preach on this morning, and one one of you can go really one of two ways when you're going to preach on faith. You can either kind of preach on faith for the Christian life, and I mean there's a whole lot that could be said there. Just go and read Hebrews chapter 11 about uh, you know how the great men of the Old Testament walk by faith and not by sight. Or, and this is the the, the option I'm going to choose this morning, is we can speak more about the fundamentals. Of, of faith, how we come into a relationship with God initially by faith. And so um, I've, I've chosen to focus on the former. But you know, the amazing thing is, um, Paul said to the, the Romans when he wrote to, to them, this is an existing church, he said, I can't wait to come and preach the gospel to you also. And isn't it true that when the gospel is preached, even those of us, and I know many of you have been Christians for many years, uh, there is still a stirring in our hearts and an edification that does come through the preaching of the gospel. So I, I trust that will be the case for you this morning. Um, I did record a little video. I'm not sure how many of you managed to see that, but I was asked to, to, to do that midweek, and I trust some of you have gone and watched that. Uh, but in that video, I, I addressed uh, a, an important topic on, with regard to faith, and, and that of uh, that is the, the topic of... Um, what is faith, defined biblically. Um, So, just as a very quick summary of that, basically what I said was this, that the first thing we must know about faith in the biblical sense of the word, saving faith, is that uh, it is always tied to repentance and humility. Um, And that is because sin is predominantly against God. When we... When we sin, we're, we're breaking God's laws. Um, although we hurt others. I'm, I'm actually good. I'm fine. Thanks very much, man. <laughs> <clears throat> um, <laughs> and, and, so, and so biblical faith, if you're going to turn to God in faith, in the biblical sense, it always means turning away from sin. So sin and repentance are like indivisible in, in, in scriptural terms. And then the the second thing that I I, I did was just to define faith itself then as more than just kind of um, a knowledge or a belief. I said there must be three elements to saving faith. And the first is, of course, knowledge. Uh, Saving faith can't exist in a vacuum of knowledge. the, The gospel, as I will hopefully make clear this morning, is the good news of a set of facts, a set of historical facts, things that actually happened in human history. And God has invested eternal significance to these events of history. And we must have some familiarity with the facts of the matter. So so faith does require knowledge. Um, The second thing faith must have, because knowledge itself is not enough, is conviction. And, And conviction is this matter of well, I know that the gospel is true, the facts are true, but now conviction says something further. It says, I know that they are true for me. Yeah. It's not just objectively true. It's true for me. I am a sinner. I require forgiveness. Christ has died for me. Uh, but even that's not enough. Uh, there's another sort of nuance to this word of biblical faith, which requires absolute um, Did I just sense some bright light come on behind me? Okay. (laughs) Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, Regather the the thoughts. Uh, Where were we? uh, 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 Knowledge. Do you do this to every preacher that comes and visits on a Sunday morning? Uh, Thank you for your ministry. We do do appreciate it. Um, um, So knowledge, conviction is true for me. And then the third element of saving faith is trust. Is entrusting oneself to this, this great man, Jesus Christ, who was more than a man. And entrusting your entire future to him, your life to him, all your decisions to him. And in fact your eternity. Just entrusting them into his hands. That is saving faith. It's knowledge of the facts of the gospel, conviction that it's true for me, and then taking that step of entrusting oneself into his hands. Okay, so if if that is what faith is in the biblical sense, this morning I want to address a slightly different question. And that is this, why is it that God has chosen faith to be the means through which he saves his people? And and that's that's an intriguing question. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, in fact, sum up the entire argument of this morning in in two small verses. Now, I'm going to read you these verses now, uh, because they frame the question and they give the answer to the question that lays before us this morning, which is, why faith? And so, this is going to be a bit like one of those movies where, at the beginning of the movie, it actually is the end of the movie, at the beginning, and then... You know, And then there's like nine months earlier, and then you like go back in time, and, and you see how the whole thing happened, and then the end scene of the movie is back at the beginning. So it's going to be a bit like that. I'm going to give you the answer up front, and then we're going to spend the whole morning discussing, when I say the whole morning, that's just in you know, a hyperbole, okay, don't worry. Um, I'm, I'm going to spend the morning then talking about why is it the way it is framed in these verses. We're going to just add some more scriptures into it to kind of fill out our understanding. So, here's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. That's unmerited favor, the kindness of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith. So, so there we have uh, the Apostle Paul, as he writes the Ephesians, he, we, we have him now tell us what is the means. What is, it's almost like the golden pipe. Through which, if I can use a very crude analogy, God gets his salvation from heaven to a human being on earth. This is the means through which he does it. The medium. He says we're saved by grace. That's the motive. And then through faith. That's the means. Okay? And the question we want to ask is why? Why is faith the means that God chooses? Why not some other means? Why not... A pilgrimage, that we can all just go on a pilgrimage to some holy place, and then when we get there, we've ticked the big box in the sky, and we're then saved. We receive peace with God, and we can go to heaven, and everything will be fine on the day of our death. Why not, um, you know, some other form of good works, you know, like obedience, just living a sort of pious, obedient life. I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm just going to live a sort of moral, upstanding life. Why not that? Shouldn't that be a means to finding peace with God and, and being okay on the day of our death? Why not um, generosity? You're giving money away. Why not set a, um, set, set a whole bunch of prayers that we have to say? You know, uh, say this number of prayers and, and point in, in this direction and bow so many times a day. And why not any of these other means? Why faith? That's the question we have before us this morning. Paul goes on to answer it. As we continue. So he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. See, everything else that I was listing there, the pilgrimage, the being a good person, the the prayers, the generosity, all of that is works. Those are things that you do from your own resources, in your own strength, in an effort to earn, by way of merit, heaven. Now, Paul says here, This gift of God in salvation that he gives. Faith being the means. He says it is done so that it will not be of works. Lest anyone should boast. That's the answer to the question this morning. Why faith? So that no one will boast in his presence. That's the answer. Now that may seem to you. If it's the first time you've heard that claim, it may seem almost egotistical of God. I mean, who does he think he is to to set it up that way, you know? That we can't earn anything, it's all just a gracious gift, and just by simply trusting, we are saved, and so we can't boast. We would just be grateful. I mean, isn't that a little bit egotistical? Isn't it demeaning to our self-esteem, that we can't earn anything? Well... What I want to do now is I want to dive into a few other verses to justify this, this scheme, this claim. So before we, we dive into our, our first verse, which is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, so if you want to just page there quietly while I'm introducing it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll, we'll read verses 18 to 20 together to begin with. Before we dive into those verses, um, a little historical background is necessary to what we're going to be reading. Uh, These verses are taken from uh, Paul's letter. So uh, Paul was probably the greatest Christian missionary of all time. He lived in the first century. Uh, this letter itself that we're going to read was written in about 49 AD. So it's about 20 years after the death of Jesus. This is right after the events of the gospel, the main events of the gospel had happened in history. So um, what happened was Paul had been traveling on his missionary journeys. He had planted uh, this church in this uh, city called Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a city in the, the region in, in that day and age called Achaia. Or Archaea. So Archaea is what today we will call southern Greece. And the city of Corinth was one of the main cities in the region of Archaea. If you want to read about that missionary trip and when he planted that church, it's, it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 18. You can go and read the, the account of it there. Uh, Paul was on his second missionary journey at the time, and uh, after having fled a persecution in northern Greece, which in, in those days was called Macedonia, so we've got Macedonia and Archaea. He'd fled from Macedonia because there'd been massive persecution up there in Thessalonica, he'd gone to Berea. And then the brethren had sent him south. They said, look, it's getting too hot. You need to get out of here. He had left his traveling companions um, in Berea, hoping that Timothy, Timothy and Silas were his traveling companions, hoping that Timothy would then go back to Thessalonica, where he'd been booted out, to go and check on the new church there. He was exceedingly worried about that new church, while he traveled alone south into Archaea. The first city that, uh, that Paul came to as he traveled south on his own was the city of Athens. Athens is right next to Corinth. Um, So he did what he always did. He started preaching the gospel. He went to the marketplace. And soon enough, the the people in Athens heard this man speaking, this strange new doctrine, and they were fascinated by anything philosophical, as the Greeks were. And uh, they brought him to the sort of seat of the, the philosophical elite of the day at the Areopagus, or Mars Hill where all of the great philosophers of the day met. Now, um, we must bear in mind how influential and how powerful the philosophers in Greece were. In fact, some of you may be doing a block on philosophy in your degree, and you'll know that the first thing they teach you when you study philosophy at varsity is is Greek philosophy. Uh, Greek philosophy, so you'll learn about Thales, the father of modern philosophy, and and then you go through all of Anaximander and all of these guys, and then you get to Plato and Aristotle, I mean, the the Greeks are renowned in all of human history as being incredibly philosophical and wise, so this is who now Paul is standing in front of, the philosophical elite of his day, and he preached probably the most famous sermon to a Gentile audience, uh, in the Bible, you can go and read that. That's Acts chapter 17 uh, on, on Mars Hill. He leaves Athens and he then travels to the nearby city of Corinth. Um, when, when he got to Corinth, uh, I think it's just worth bearing in mind that Paul has just now interacted with those who, who are the, the custodians of wisdom in this world. Worldly wisdom. He, he's got that fresh in his mind. When he now comes to Corinth, he's just gone head-to-head with the wisdom of this world, bringing the wisdom of God in the gospel. He comes to Corinth, he uh, begins preaching, plants a church. At some point, Timothy and Silas joined him in Corinth, and they begin a a more formal ministry of planting a church. Um, at, At one point, persecution began to arise again for poor Paul. Everywhere this guy went, he was persecuted and, you know, this isn't just someone putting rude comments on his Facebook page. This is, this is, I get beaten with rods, I get shipwrecked, I get stoned to death, and, and. So at one point he begins to fear, there's, there's uh, a, a persecution brewing, and he begins to feel uh, timid and fearful uh, for, for his physical well-being. And the most amazing thing happens, Jesus appeared to him in a vision at night. And said to him, a um, printer ran out of red inks and now it's gone yellow. It's very difficult to read. Um, do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. Interesting comment. But don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm with you, Paul. You can stay and you can preach. I'm going to protect you wonderfully, incredibly encouraging news for Paul because he was fearful. So with that encouragement intact, and uh, one of the things we're busy praying for at Church on Main is that uh, the gift of prophecy would, would manifest more and more frequently within our midst. And one of the things the Bible says about prophecy is it edifies, exhorts, and comforts believers. And this is the kind of thing we see here. He's so encouraged by this word. Um, so they spent two years together in Corinth, which was an abnormally long time for Paul in a city. After that two years, Paul left Corinth, he continued on his missionary journeys, and uh, he would only return to Corinth five years later. Now, bear in mind, this isn't a day and age where it's not easy to keep in touch across geographic distances. Obviously, no technology, none of that kind of co- correspondence is possible, only letter writing and then you'd have to send someone physically to go and take your letter. Although there was a sort of rudimentary uh, postal system in the Roman Empire, but he would often send his letters by the hands of one of his, his, um, his protégés, like Timothy, for example. So um, in this, in this five year period, Paul does have some correspondence with the Corinthian church after he left them. And as he's now continuing on his missionary journeys, he begins to hear stories that that there are some significant problems in this church that he's left. And he's deeply burdened by all of the chaos and, and, and theological uh, problems that are arising there. And so what he does is he begins to write letters back to the Corinthian church to address the, the, the many and varied problems that they were experiencing. We know that Paul wrote four letters to that Corinthian church. We have two of them. So the first one we've lost. The second one is what we call 1 Corinthians. The third one we've lost, and then the fourth one is what we call 2 Corinthians. So we have the second and the fourth letters in the New Testament. They're part of the 27 books of the New Testament. So as we now turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, three, we, we find ourselves in the middle of a, of, of a section in the, in the book, the first four chapters of this letter, in which Paul deals with one of the problems that they were experiencing, which was this. A major misapprehension regarding the leadership within the Christian church. How does Christian leadership work? This was a big problem in Corinth. And Paul now addresses it here in these verses. Um, Part of the the problem was that in the Greek psyche, in the way they viewed wisdom and the world and making progress in philosophy and all of that, was that they would attach themselves to individuals, a school of some person. And they would take great delight and great pride in the fact that I follow Aristotle. I'm an Aristotelian, and because I follow Aristotle... I actually have the secret wisdom. They were into this whole secret wisdom thing. I have the secret knowledge and the secret wisdom that nobody else has because I follow Aristotle. No, 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 I follow Socrates, someone else would say, and so I have the special wisdom that you don't have because I follow Socrates. They were obsessed with people. And now people get saved, they get added to the church, and they just brought the same penchant, do you say the T in the end of the, uh, Okay. <clears throat> they had this uh, predisposition, shall we say, to attaching themselves to an individual. And so we have them saying, I follow Paul. And because I follow Paul, I have the insight and wisdom that none of you in the rest of the church have. And, then, and there'd be another then faction which would say, no, 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 we follow Uh, Apollos and then another one saying no no we follow Peter and because we follow Peter we have got the wisdom you know we are the custodians of the true wisdom because we follow so and so and it's this very thing that Paul now addresses in the verses that I'm going to be reading to you And, and Paul here makes an impassioned plea to them he says he says who are we who am I Paul Attaching yourself to me. Who, who are we except messengers of the grace of God in the gospel? That's all we are. We're just messengers. We don't have any kind of special wisdom. And that's all a preacher is. It's just a messenger to come and share as faithfully as he should the message of God in the gospel. And... Uh, As he now begins to speak about how preachers are heralds of God's wisdom, not their own. That's the point. He's he's saying this is all about God's wisdom, this is not about us. And God's wisdom is displayed in the gospel. As As he gets there, now he we're gonna read from verse 18 in 1 Corinthians 3. Let no one deceive himself. It is so easy to be deceived, particularly in this environment. You know, I follow, I follow. Don't be deceived, he says. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, now he quotes Job, the book of Job. He says, for it is written, he catches The wise in their own craftiness. And again, and I quote Psalm 94, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they're futile. In these verses, Paul contrasts two things. On the one hand, the wisdom of the world and all the systems of the world the whole world view of the world. Mm-hmm. He, he, he contrasts that in which people delight. Mm-hmm. The, the human heart delights in human wisdom and human philosophy and all our clever thoughts. Yeah. We delight in that, naturally. Mm-hmm. But he, he now contrasts this with the wisdom of God. Now uh, The first thing that must be said here is the Bible is not opposed to wisdom. Quite clearly, you just read through the scriptures, read through the book of Proverbs. It says, wisdom is to be sought more than anything. It's more valuable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Better than than rubies and precious jewels. If you get anything in life, says the writer of the Proverbs, get wisdom. So, So wisdom is good. But what Paul says is that if anyone in this world wants to be truly wise... That person will first have to become a fool so that he or she may become wise. They have to become a fool, as it were. They have to unlearn much of what their own heart has taught them from when they were a child. They have to unlearn much of of what they think is wise and true and helpful in life that will lead to happiness and success and security and peace with God and and, and eternal security after you die. So many of the things that, that we believe. Paul says, if you want to be wise, you are first going to have to unlearn so much before you can become truly wise. This, the Bible says, is the path to wisdom. And that's not a pleasant path. It's, we don't like that. We, we don't want to admit that the things we hold dear, the commitments we have within our hearts, the, the opinions that we have about life, and we don't want to admit that we're wrong. Paul says, if you want to be wise, you have to be brought low before you can be brought high. God is not interested in humiliating you. He loves you. This is an incredible God. But because of what sin has done to us, God in his love, he tells us the truth. He says, if you want to find me, if you want to have peace with me, you're going to have to be brought low first. So why is this the case? And Paul tells us it's because in these verses it's because the the wisdom of this world is opposed to the wisdom of God it's not just that the wisdom of the world is incomplete somehow it, it only takes us so far that the wisdom of the world can kind of help us be you know reasonably happy, reasonably successful, it can help us find God a little bit and and maybe give us some tips for the next life you know after we die, but we just need the wisdom of God to kind of You know, just get us that extra bit at the end. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the wisdom of the world is utterly opposed to God's wisdom. These two things are in opposition with one another. Now, it is this that I want to talk about this morning. Because as with all of God's truth... You know, we, we hear things in scripture that sometimes are difficult to hear. Um, but, you know, God is, first of all, God is not afraid to, to tell us things that are true. He, you know, his word is full of challenges to this rebellious, sinful spirit of man. And yet, God is also not afraid to reason with us, to tell us why he's saying the things. He says, come, let us reason together. So so what I want to do, I just want to talk a little bit before we close about this this thing. Why is it that the wisdom of God in the gospel, primarily displayed in the gospel, is opposed to the wisdom of man? And as we read through the New Testament, there's three reasons that God gives us in his own word as to why there is this opposition. Uh, I'm going to read the three reasons to you. We won't have time to get to the third one in detail this morning, but I'm going to speak a little bit about the first and second, and then we're done this morning. Okay, so here are the three reasons why the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world are in opposition with one another. Firstly, because the wisdom of the world is impotent to deliver man from sin. The wisdom of the world cannot deliver you from sin. You know why? Because it denies the problem. The wisdom of the world, you go and read the newspaper, you go and listen to magazines, you go and watch movies, they will not tell you man is basically sinful and needs to be forgiven. They won't tell you that. They'll say man is basically good and he needs to be just put in a good environment and then he will flourish. That is in total opposition to the testimony of Scripture. Scripture says man is a sinner and he needs to be reconciled to a holy God. So that's the first reason there's opposition Because the wisdom of the world denies the very problem. So it can't solve the problem. It's impotent. Secondly, why the opposition? Because the wisdom of the world rejects God's answer to the problem. So the wisdom of the world denies the problem, and it also rejects his solution, which is Jesus Christ crucified. Denies the problem rejects the solution thirdly the wisdom of the world persecutes those whom god in his wisdom sends as his messengers we're not going to get to that this morning denies the problem rejects the solution persecutes the messengers that's the wisdom of the world so let's talk about that first one the wisdom of the world denies the problem of sin and so is impotent to deal with it now for sure we love pointing fingers it's not that human beings don't know what sin is. We do know. We have a conscience, every one of us. And in fact, while we might, might not be very quick to point out our own sins and our own faults to ourselves, we are very quick to point out other people's sins and faults when they are committed against us, aren't we? Someone steals your, your cell phone. Outrage. Someone gossips about you behind your back and tells some stories that aren't true. Outrage. You know why outrage? Because it's wrong. They shouldn't do that. And we know that. We have this built-in moral monitor called a conscience that God has given every human being. We know what is right and wrong. So that's not what this is talking about. When we say the world denies the problem, the world loves to point fingers. What I'm saying is that the world (laughs) denies the problem as the scriptures present it. And nowhere is this better illustrated than in Colossians chapter 2, where Paul is talking about the religions of the world. And this is a fascinating insight. If you want to really understand why there's this opposition, just look at the, the, the religions of the world. Every other religion has been set up by men in order to solve all the problems of life have a happy life, Have find significance, find peace with the deity, whoever the deity is, and ensure that when we die, because death comes to all of us, and this is the big problem of the humanity, is that death comes. When death comes, the religions of the world will give you some sort of road map in order to navigate that. Now Paul, in discussing all of these religions, this is what he says, he says such regulations, all the regulations of these various religions, do this, do that, to bow in this direction, say this number of prayers, go on this pilgrimage, all, all that stuff, do, do this, this, this um, what's that thing called, um, meditation thing, all, all of this, go to an ashram, do other, all of this. He says such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. In the modern world we live in, it's like it's very cool to go to India and go, go to an ashram and it's like very cool and it's very like, you know, it's, 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 it has an appearance of wisdom. Now, but listen to, uh, he's got some harsh words. He says uh, it has the appearance of wisdom with self-imposed worship. Sure. He says all of those religions are self-imposed worship. It's, it's, they draw up their own tick box mm-hmm. and then they go and tick the boxes. And they say, okay, right. Here we go. Now I, I'm fine now. Now I'm good for death, I'm good for heaven, I'm good for the rest of my life, I'm good for happiness, I'm good for all of the things we want because I've ticked the box. But they drafted the own their own list. It's not God's list. This is what the religions of the world do. He says, self imposed worship, their false humility. You know this it's it's false humility, Paul says. And their harsh treatment of the body. Which we see in many religions. But, now now, I want you to note here the very thing that Paul says, why this opposition? But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They lack any value in restraining the sinful desires of men and women. They cannot overcome the real problem, which is sin in the human heart. Impotent to free people from sin. Impotent to solve the problem. You know why? Because none of them can reach into the very heart and spirit of a man or a woman or a child and take out that sinful heart of stone that we're all born with, that rebellious heart, and put in a heart of flesh that loves and delights in the law of God. What we need, my friends, is a new heart. We need a new heart. And this is what Jesus brings Brings a new heart. The wisdom of the world flounders from the outset because it refuses to recognize the basic fact of human existence. That though man is made in the image of God, though we are made to know God and have fellowship with God, yet man is estranged from God because man is a sinner. This is a basic fact of the gospel. We are sinners. We have rebelled against a holy God. And we are at enmity with him, the Bible says. And so we we need to be reconciled. This is why Paul says that if we want to become wise, truly wise in this life and know the wisdom of God, we must first become fools in the world's eyes. It's, It's a foolish thing in the eyes of the world to admit that I have offended a holy God and I must be reconciled to him. That's foolishness. But this is the wisdom of God. Mm. That we stand condemned by him. That we're in need of his forgiveness. That we're in need of his powerful liberation from sin. That this thing, that none of these good works, not even coming to church as good as coming to church is, can liberate you from sin. Mm. We are slaves of sin, Jesus said, but he who the Son makes free is free indeed. Because it's the Son that can, that can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, come and change your very heart. He can recreate you. This is the greatest need of the world. This is why. All of the United Nations and policing systems and educational systems and social justice initiatives and getting a better education and all of those things, as good as those things are, these things are not the answer for the world's problems. Because they do not address the very problem itself, which is the corrupt heart of man. And this is what God addresses in the gospel. He addresses the heart. And he can take out that heart of stone and he can put in a heart of flesh. Yes. In short, here's what we must admit that we need a Savior. Yeah. Do you know that you need a Savior? You sit here this morning. Have you come to that point in your life where you are willing to admit, I have sinned and I need a Savior? It may feel humbling, that's the love of God. It's the love of God opening your mind to that truth. Because he loves you, he's calling you. Mm-hmm. So come to me, I'll give you fullness of life, but you must come my way. So that's the first one, the second one's a lot shorter than that. <laughs> The wisdom of the world is opposed to the wisdom of God because the the wisdom of the world denies the very problem and so it's impotent to solve the problem. Secondly, the wisdom of the world rejects the message of the cross, which is God's solution. What is the message of the cross? I'm sure you've heard it many times. Uh, The word gospel means good news because this is good news. It's amazing news in fact. The good news is that you don't have to do anything. You don't have to to lean on your own resources in any way whatsoever to be reconciled to God and to know the love of God as your Father. To know forgiveness. You don't have to do anything. It's a free gift. It's a free gift that He gives. That is the most amazing news you'll ever hear. Because if it depended on our good works... If it depended on me, Steve Johnston, being a good person, I would never make it. And so God says, don't worry, son. Just clear all that away. I want to give you a gift. Forgiveness. It's wonderful news. And that becomes so much clearer when we see what the Bible says about man. That what I've been speaking about this morning, that man is dreadfully lost in sin. And yet, God is exalted and powerful like the lion of Judah, roaring like a lion, that he's not to be toyed with, he's not to be played with. This is a holy God. When we see the distinction between us and him, we suddenly feel undone before him. It's good, it's a mercy if we do. But God is not just, you know, holy and just and going to judge sin, which he will, he's also in exceedingly, infinitely merciful and patient and kind. The Bible says that God is love. He is love. Any love that we experience, any goodness that we experience in this world, this sinful world, is the grace of God. Just letting His being permeate and and, and bring goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and love to this world. He is the source of everything good. And so in His goodness and in His love, God made a way... For sinful men and women to be saved. And this is where we see the wisdom of God on the cross. God sent his only son. A member of the Trinity. God himself. God the son. The father sent the son into the world. He was born in a little human baby body. Born of a virgin. And yet lived as a man. He was fully a man. And yet he was fully God. And as fully a man and fully God, he could, bring, he could bring God and man together once again. And he did that through the sacrifice of himself. He went to that cross. When he hung on that cross, he was taking the punishment, the wrath of God upon us. For our sin and our rebellion against him. He was taking a full force upon himself. And he cried out. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Because we should have been forsaken. That's why. And he took our forsaking for us. That pleased God to bruise him. To crush his own son. So that the justice demanded by a holy God on sin. Could be satisfied. What kind of God is this who would die for a wicked, rebellious, sinful race of people? This is the God we serve. Mm. He took the very worst of it upon himself to save us. And now the wrath of God has been satisfied. And so he reaches his hands out and he says, come to me. If you will put your faith in my son who was raised from the dead on the third day. He's alive. Jesus is alive. He's here. You can't see him with your eyes. He's here. The Bible says he walks amongst the golden lampstands of the churches. He's here. And he's reaching out those nail scarred hands to you this morning. Perhaps if you've never come to him. If you've never made Jesus your savior. He's reaching out to you this morning. He says come. He says if you will just put your trust in me. I will wash you clean. My blood is able to do. What all the religions of the world are impotent to do, my blood can do. You just say yes to Jesus. Put your faith in him. So could it be that simple? The the wisdom of the world says no. It can't be that simple. That you just believe. But this is the message of the gospel. That's why Paul says this. He says, through the foolishness of the message that we preach, God saves those who believe. It's a foolish message to the world, but to us are being saved, it's the power of God, the message of the gospel, and our hearts just say, yes, God, yes, and you'll be saved. So we return now to the beginning, Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you've been saved, through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not of works, so that no one can boast. God will not share his glory with another. Faith is the open hand, the empty hand that receives the gift of forgiveness. That's why faith. It's the one way that we can look outside of ourselves and not to anything in ourselves. We just look to something outside of ourselves, the mercy of God, and we say, yes, God, please. And he forgives you for Christ's sake. For the sake of his son, he forgives you. and he holds you. He holds you for the rest of your life. He will hold you. and you will find that God is an incredible father, that once you're forgiven, he starts showering you with his blessings. I mean what? It's good news, isn't it? It's great news. I wonder if you'll bow your heads with me as we close in prayer. Well, Father, what can we say as we as we dwell upon this great scheme of salvation that that you sent your only son to endure the punishment that I deserve so that I could be saved, Lord, what can we say lord we're undone, Lord. As I, as I pray, Lord, I, I don't know what to say to you. I'm, I'm so grateful, God. I'm so grateful, God. Thank you, Lord. And to you be all the glory and honor and praise, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming to us, for changing our hearts, for filling us with your life and power. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we we want to be wise in, with, with godly wisdom, and I pray, oh God, that you'd grant it to each one of us here this morning to appropriate that. So as you keep your eyes closed, I'm going to ask, there may be someone here, maybe several of you, who you have never made this step of faith, of putting your trust in Jesus for forgiveness, and maybe you've visited a couple of the, the sessions over the last five weeks, and You've come to a point where this morning you want to say yes to Jesus. If that's you, could I just ask you to raise your hand? Just, just wave at me so that I can see I want to pray for you. Thank you, ma'am. Anyone else? It may be that as you sit here as a, as a Christian, that you've been living in sin. It may be something in your life that you felt convicted of this morning. And you know, you know the voice of the Spirit to you this morning. And maybe it is that that you want to turn away from that thing this morning and come back to God and say, yes, God, I'm sorry. I want to obey you again and seek your wisdom. If that's you, just as a sign of humility, would you just raise your hand as well? Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll tell you what, lots of people raised their hands. Let's let's all just pray a prayer together. Just pray this after me. Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner. And I know that you sent your son for me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I'm sorry for my sin. I turn back to you this morning. Please forgive me, God give me strength to overcome. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, God.